Our scripture reading for today is from Deuteronomy 10, 12 through 11, 9. And now, O Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to observe the Lord's commands and decrees that I am giving you today for your own good. To the Lord your God belong the heavens, even the highest heavens, the earth and everything in it. Yet the Lord set his affection on your forefathers and loved them, and he chose you, their descendants, above all the nations as it is today. Circumcise your hearts, therefore, and do not be stiff-necked any longer. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality and accepts no bribes. He defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow and loves the alien, giving him food and clothing. And you are to love those who are aliens, for you yourselves were aliens in Egypt. Fear the Lord your God and serve him. Hold fast to him and take your oath in his name. He is your praise. He is your God who performed for you those great and awesome wonders you saw with your own eyes. Your forefathers who went down into Egypt were 70 in all, and now the Lord your God has made you as numerous as the stars in the sky. Love the Lord your God and keep his requirements, his decrees, his laws, and his commands always. Remember today that your children were not the ones who saw and experienced the discipline of the Lord your God, his majesty, his mighty hand, his outstretched arms, the signs he performed and the things he did in the heart of Egypt, both to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and to his whole country, what he did to the Egyptian army, to its horses and chariots, how he overwhelmed them with the waters of the Red Sea as they were pursuing you, and how the Lord brought lasting ruin on them. It was not your children who saw what he did for you in the desert until you arrived at this place, and what he did to Dathan and Abram, sons of Eliab, the Reubenite, when the earth opened its mouth right in the middle of all Israel and swallowed them up with their households, their tents, and every living thing that belonged to them. But it was your own eyes that saw all of these great things the Lord has done. Observe, therefore, all the commands I am giving you today, so that you may have strength to go in and take over the land that you are crossing the Jordan to possess, and so that you may live long in the land that the Lord swore to your forefathers to give to them and their descendants, a land flowing with milk and honey. This is the word of the Lord. Pray with me. God and Father, we turn now to your word. I pray that you would be near to all of us, though we are sinful people, as we seek to understand it better. You would be with me, though I am a sinner, as I seek to proclaim it. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable to you, O God. Amen. So, um, yeah, if you're visiting with us, I am... We are in the process, actually, of pastoral transition here at Kish, and I have five more Sundays, counting this one, in which I will be here sharing God's word with you. And I was real tempted to just preach through Luke until the very end and not, not do anything different and just stop whenever it stopped. There's a, 
a very famous story um, about John Calvin, the Swiss, Swiss reformer who I love, who would just preach through books of the Bible, that one Sunday he was dragged out of the pulpit into exile by the city council in Geneva, and more than three years later he um, was allowed to come back, and the next Sunday he got up and simply started reading the next text in order <laughs> um, to, to preach from. But I did want to take a few weeks here uh, at the end to just talk about a couple of different things. And this is kind of weird because the next four weeks, there's kind of some specific encouragements and things I want to give about um, you all and the next season in a kind of particular way after getting to be here for more than five years. But this Sunday, I want to do something more modest, which is to try to summarize all of Christianity. <laughs> um, I feel like there's a set of themes that are woven all through the Bible and that together really form the Christian life. Um, and, and that one of the challenges sometimes in preaching is to know how much you can get so focused on particular things that you don't kind of zoom out. And so some people, if you're like a very specific detail person, you will not love this. Some people, if you're like a big picture, love that, you'll probably love this. But the plan this morning is I want to just first talk a little bit about three themes that I think together form the center of Christianity in Scripture. Three themes. And just name and talk about each of them separately. And then I want to show you how they fit together and how they fit together in the text from Deuteronomy that we just read. And then I want to talk about how that's helpful and maybe give one specific practical way that that can be helpful to you. The first three themes. And the first of those is God's glory. The glory of God is the first theme that you see woven all through the Bible. And when we talk about the glory of God in Scripture, there's really two related ideas. The first is simply that God is glorious. It's just a statement of fact in that sense. It's like the sky is blue and water is wet and God is glorious. That's the kind of glory of God you see some in this text. So like in verse 17, Moses says, For the Lord your God is God of gods, the Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God. And when it says things like that, that's not a statement of like something God wishes that he could be. That's, some, that's not a statement of something that God is working on or that he's achieved. It's just in his nature, he is above any other power. He is great. He is mighty. He is awesome. So in that sense, God is glorious, sort of like the way the sun shines, right? Just by the nature of it being the sun, it is shining out glory. And if it stopped shining out glory, it wouldn't be the sun anymore. But then in another sense, God's glory in Scripture is also a description of something that creation does and that we are called to do, that we are called to glorify God, to praise Him, to magnify Him, to make His name great. And that theme of God's glory is a little harder for us, I think, because we so often get stuck in kind of human ways of thinking about that because it's absolutely true that if I said that another human being existed to glorify me or said, you know, glorify me, <laughs> that that's, that would seem wrong to us, right? I mean, it would, it would seem inappropriate. You'd probably think that I'm kind of insecure and um, that I don't have a right to that. And that's not, that's true of human beings, but that's one of those cases where we really just have to recognize that God is God. Like the problem with human beings trying to take glory from other human beings 
think about like think about like a great dancer, right? Some young person that's you know some like ballet dancer or whatever. There there might be people that try to use their dancing for their own glory, right? Like their coach or their parents, kind of stereotypically might kind of try to make their dancing about them. And we would recognize that that's wrong because even though they might have contributed in some ways to that person's dancing, they didn't. You know, they didn't give them arms and legs. They didn't give them the skill and talent. They didn't do the work, right? That it was that person ultimately that did the dancing. And so that would be wrong. But of course, God, in relation to that dancer, does deserve the glory for all of those things. He gave them the arms and the legs that they're dancing with. He put the skill and the ability in them, and he shaped and molded them over their lives so that they could do it. So there's a real sense in which that dancer is called to dance in a way that shows forth God's glory. But that example is also helpful because when we talk about glorifying God, notice that like the way that dancer would do it is by dancing excellently and then giving God the credit. It's not that the ballet dancer would have to like be dancing and then suddenly stop in the middle of their performance and like give a little presentation about Jesus in order to be glorifying God. But by the very nature of doing the thing that they're created to do gloriously, that dancer is showing forth God's glory. And that is the way scripture thinks about us glorifying God. That we glorify God by being the flourishing, purposeful creatures that he made us to be, by living the sort of like glorious lives that he made us to live, and then by giving him praise and honor in that, and acknowledging that all of that is ultimately from him. So that's the first theme, God's glory. God is glorious, and we are called to show that glory and give honor to him because he deserves it. Now, this is normally where I talk about practical stuff, but remember— We're saying big picture to start here. So second theme, (laughs) we'll come back to these in a minute. The second theme woven through scripture is God's grace. God's grace. That Christianity and our relationship with God always rests not on us deserving something or earning something, but simply on God's free grace shown to us. And you see that same thing here in Deuteronomy 10. So for example, if you look at verse 14 first, God declares his glory. He says, Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the heaven of heavens, the earth with all that is in it. So that's God's glory. But then verse 15, Yet the Lord set his heart in love on your forefathers and chose their offspring after them, you above all peoples as you are this day. So God is glorious and all of the earth belongs to him. And yet he chose to set you apart and love you. And the key thing to recognize about that is that Moses doesn't say why. (laughs) He doesn't explain what it is about the Israelites that would make them that people. And in fact, early in in Deuteronomy, he spends some time making clear that there isn't a why. Back in chapter 7, he says this. He says, this is straight talk. He says, The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers. So he's saying it's not because you, there, you were special as a people. It's not because there was something unusually good about you that God chose to love you, but God chose to love you because he chose to love you. And that is actually the key to understanding grace in Scripture. That God chooses to love us because he chooses to love us. That the reason that God loves me does not rest in me, but it rests in God. 
That is grace. That the reason that God loves me does not rest in me, but it rests in God. And that message of grace means that on the one hand, no matter how hard we struggle, and no matter how slow we are to learn, and how many issues we have, and how many times we fail and stumble, that God does not love us any less, because his love does not rest on something in us, it rests on him alone. But also, this is why we struggle with grace. It means that no matter how well we do, and no matter how much we serve God, and no matter how much we grow, and no matter how well we run the race, that God doesn't love us anymore. Because the reason for his love rests in him and not in us. That last theme is just really important for us to stress as Christians. Because when we talk about God's glory, that first theme, I think we get that that's going to be kind of humbling and hard, right? We're like, oh yeah, we expect people to struggle in some ways with the idea of God's glory and living for God's glory. But I think a lot of us, when we get to grace, we expect that that's something that everyone's just going to like and that we're always going to love. But the truth is that grace is also at times hard and humbling because we struggle with that kind of undeserved gift. I mean, we even as human beings struggle with gifts. I mean, I maybe especially, I feel like, over the years have struggled with that. But it's not that I can't receive something, but it's that the easier it is for me to figure out a reason that I'm getting it, then the easier it is for me to receive it, right? So, like, I have no problem, like, you know, at Christmas time when we're all exchanging gifts, because that's what families do, and also, like, I'm giving, you know, other people gifts as much as I'm getting, right? (coughs) Um, And, you know, and then I struggle more, but can kind of receive when someone's like, well, like, like, we've had a lot of the hard, you know, with hard stuff in our lives, like, here, you know, we we, we care about this hard stuff, and we want to care for you, and that's harder for me, but I can still receive it. But there have been a few times in my life where someone's just given me something for no reason, right? Like some stranger doesn't know me from Adam, just does something generous to me. And that's really hard for me because I feel like, wait, like, I, you know, I'm supposed to on some level deserve that thing that you're giving me. And, and so then what happens is I try to like figure out a way to pay them back or something, right? You, um, I always remember it's more pronounced there, but in, when we were visiting some friends in Japan a couple years ago, we, we found out that it's normal there where people actually have a box in their trunk of um, emergency gifts in case somebody gives you something so that you could go to your trunk and get something out to give back to them because you don't, you know, you, you don't want to, like, not be able to repay them. But even if it's not that extreme, I think we all slip into that, right? We, the more undeserved the gift is, the harder it is for us to receive it. But that's what God's grace is, a truly undeserved gift. There's nothing that we have done and nothing that we can do to deserve it from him, but he gives us his love anyway. So that's two themes. And then one more. That is God's goodness. God's goodness. And sort of like glory, goodness is tricky because when we say God is good, we can really be talking about two different things. One of them, I think, is that we can be talking about God's generosity, that God gives good gifts to us, does good things to us. And I think a lot of times when people are like, God is good, that's what they mean, right? That something in the Lord's provision in their lives or the way that he's working, they're really happy about, they've really felt like he's generous, and so they're saying he's good. And that's true and biblical. Of course, the other sense of goodness in Scripture is that God is morally good, that he is righteous, right? That he does what is upright and good. And and then out of that, of course, in Scripture, we're called to pursue moral goodness. 
right? That as the Lord is righteous, therefore we are called to be righteous. So we have God's goodness in terms of generosity and giving good things to us, and God's goodness instead of his moral purity and righteousness. And the key thing about this theme of God's goodness is to understand that in the Bible, those two meanings of goodness are actually the same thing. That those two meanings of goodness are actually the same, which is to say that God's moral purity and his calls to us to pursue moral righteousness are actually his generosity and kindness to us. And you see that in, if you read the first few verses of our reading for today. This is really, I've always been struck by this. Moses says, And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord, which I am commanding you today for your good. (laughs) It's that last part that's so counterintuitive to us, right? God wants us to have and experience good things, and therefore... He calls us to this sort of moral righteousness and obedience. Moses is saying, do you want to do what's truly good for you? Then do what is truly good in terms of God's righteousness. And that's actually a huge idea that we we really miss a lot of the time, but is so crucial to understanding Christianity, which is that our calling to obey God is not about some list of rules that he wants to force us to keep. It's not about some arbitrary things up in heaven in him, but our call to obey and follow God is actually a manifestation of his love for us and his desire for us to experience good things. God wants us to have the truly best, truly happiest, truly most flourishing sort of life that we can in the context of this fallen world. The problem is not with God The problem is that we actually often in our sin don't want that. We want passing pleasures, easy comforts, fleeting joys, things that are immediate rather than what is truly good. Sin is always trading that true good for what is easy or convenient or cheap. But that's the third theme, God's goodness. That God is both in himself good and generous, And he therefore calls us to seek to live in ways that are obedient to him and that reflect his righteousness. So God's glory, God's grace, God's goodness. So each of those you could do a sermon series on, right? (laughs) Uh, That's the thing about this. And we're not going to dig into them, but here's what I want to do next. If those are, I think, if you highlighted up your Bible, right, if you had three colors and those were the three themes, like, you could cover most of the Bible with those three themes, What I want to suggest is that it's not just that those are three ideas in Scripture, but that those actually have a certain order to them that fits together in a certain way in the Bible and in the Christian life. That it is glory and then grace and then goodness that is the process that we move through as Christians, and that's really the cycle that we move through over and over in the Christian life. The best way I know to do that is to walk through our reading for today. So if you are a Bible in front of you person, have it open, you can look up on the screen, but we're about to do a bunch of scripture. But here's the deal. If you look at Deuteronomy 10, verses 12 and 13, we just read, and that's sort of about goodness, right? Moses calls Israel to obey and pursue God's righteousness for their good, right? That's goodness. But then in verse 14, we have glory. Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the heaven of heavens, the earth and all that is in it. And in verse 15, out of that glory comes grace. Yet, 
the Lord set his heart in love on your forefathers and chose their offspring after them, you above all peoples as you are this day. And then out of that comes a call to goodness. Circumcise, therefore, the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. See that? So glory, we get grace and therefore goodness. And then there's glory again in verse 17. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who's not partial and takes no bribes. And then verse 18, grace. God executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. So there you especially have like God's sort of glory in his justice and then God's grace as he shows justice to those who are the least and the lowliest. And then therefore we're called to goodness in verses 19 and 20. Love the sojourner. Therefore, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt, you shall fear the Lord your God, you shall serve him and hold fast to him, and by his name you shall swear. And then verse 21, glory again. God is your praise. He is your God who has done for you these great and terrifying things that you have seen. And then verse 22, grace. Your fathers went down to Egypt 70 persons, and now the Lord your God has made you as numerous as the stars of the heaven. God's blessing on them, and then goodness, you shall therefore, and notice every time you you get that therefore as you move into the goodness, love the Lord your God and keep his charge, his statutes, his rules, and his commandments always. And I'm not going to read all the rest, but you actually get one more cycle where chapter 11 verse 2 is sort of God's glory, and then you have this longer section of grace recounting how God delivers them out of um, Egypt and disciplines them to draw them to himself, and then you have a call to goodness again, starting in verse 8. Do you see how it's that same cycle repeated over and over? You have a declaration of the glory of God, and then you have a declaration of God's grace and kindness, and then out of that you have, therefore, a call for us to reflect God's goodness. Here's how that process works, I think, if that's a cycle. First, it's that we see God's glory— which is sort of where it often starts in Scripture. And God's glory inspires us and it convicts us at the same time. It inspires us and it convicts us. So it inspires us because we see God's glory and on some level we recognize God is worthwhile, right? He is, he is great. He's worth living for. I ought to try to live for him. But it also convicts us because we definitely don't, because we often fail in that calling, right? That's the Romans Paul famously says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So then out of that conviction, we're then spoken God's grace. The good news that as we recognize that God is gracious to us and loves us, chooses to love us, not because we're living up to his glory, but simply in himself. And that grace comforts us and it frees us. It comforts us. It's, you know, Paul goes on to say in Romans, we're justified by God's grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ our Lord, and that comforts our hearts, but it also frees us to actually then start to live out of it, right? We see God's glory and we're inspired, but we would be crushed by that conviction of sin if we didn't have the grace joined to it. But with the grace, with the glory and grace together, then we're able to actually start to seek to live for God and therefore to live into God's goodness, So then we start to seek to pursue God's goodness and even recognize God's goodness in that. And then that leads us to grow and know God more. That we grow to be more like God and know him more. And importantly, that calls us back to God's glory, which often then 
convicts us all over again, right? That, that what happens is that as we move through that, I picture it almost like this spiral staircase of the Christian life. That, you know, you see God's glory, and then you're kind of drawn into God's grace, and then you're seeking to live for him, and then you come to know him a little bit better, and you're suddenly like, oh man, I'm falling even farther short of your glory than I thought. And so we're drawn into grace again, and, you know, and grow in him. And it's sort of that upward spiral staircase that makes up Christian maturing, Christian growth, and the heart of the Christian life. All right. So that is a bunch of big ideas, I know. But I do want to then spend a few minutes as we finish up coming out of that. I just want to say first, part of why I want to walk through that is I feel like naming those things and seeing how they fit together is really just so useful for us as Christians in general. That the more, like there's a lot of ways that it can help us. But one of the ways I think all of that is very helpful is because it helps us diagnose issues in our own spiritual lives. It helps us recognize reasons that we might be struggling spiritually, reasons that we aren't growing, because that sort of spiral at times gets short-circuited. It it kind of gets broken in some way, and usually it gets short-circuited because we're not appreciating or we're missing one of the three themes. That we kind of get stuck in the spiral because we start to miss one of the three themes or we're not giving it enough attention. And so let me try to just then give you three examples of that. One of those failures that can short-circuit our spiritual growth is not opening our eyes. Not opening our eyes to recognize and behold the glory of God. In verse 14, Before Moses declares God's glory, he says, behold. Uh, And that word pops up. If you see it in your, it it, it pops up a lot in the Old Testament. And it just means like, look, like, look, God of gods and Lord of lords, great and mighty and awesome. But it's actually a command in scripture. So it's saying, you know, yes, God is glorious, but also that somehow we need to be reminded that we need to look and behold and actually see the glory of God. Often our struggle can result simply from losing sight of God's glory because we're so focused on other things or because we're not taking the time to see it. Often our struggles with sin are caused by that. Often our struggles with motivation in the Christian life. And the reason is because often the thing that your eyes are fixed on, um, that's going to be the thing that you behold as most glorious. I don't know if you— it's the reason, have you ever noticed that shopping malls don't have windows, right? Well, they have, like, skylights, but they never have windows you can look out of. And even department stores, like, they might have windows on the front, but all the merchandise is set up so that you're not looking out the window while you look at them, right? And the reason for that is because if you look out a window and you see, like, this glorious summer day, right, and birds flying in the air and people laughing outside, and then you look at this, like, I don't know, like this drill or this top or whatever it is that you're shopping for— that's not going to seem very glorious to you. But if there's no window there, if you're not looking outside and seeing the glory of creation, it seems a lot more appealing. And that's exactly what happens in the Christian life. That's what happens with sin. I mean, the way that often temptation works is by getting us to focus on this sin and lose sight of God's glory. Um, but, but it also, even just the distractedness of life, the busyness, right? We get so focused on the next thing in front of us that, that we start to lose that perspective. And a good sign of that, of losing that sense of God's glory, 
is that we're still trying to live the Christian life, but we've lost our passion and our motivation for it. I I mean, have you experienced that in seasons, right? You still sort of believe God's grace, and man, you need it because you're not doing great, and you still sort of believe in, you know, the goodness and you're trying to follow it, but your heart just isn't in it, and often that's because you've lost that vision for, that sense of the beauty and glory and greatness of God. Our, our motivation for the Christian life is always going to be measured by our sense of God's glory. And so if that is a place that you're struggling, what I would encourage you to do is just to think through some ways you can open your eyes. And this one is, a hard, is hard for me to give practical advice because it tends to vary a lot between different people, right? For some people, that's like taking a walk outside. For some people, that's having a conversation or reading a book or you know, listening to some music that glorifies God and spending time singing in worship. But try to just make space in your days in whatever ways it fits for you, for you to just feel in your heart a little bit more of that glory of God and let that motivation eat back in. So that's one failure. Second, another thing that can happen, and these aren't exhaustive to be clear, but something else I think often happens is that we start to grow in pride in a way that causes us to lose sight of God's grace. We start to grow in pride in a way that causes us to lose sight of God's grace. And what I mean is this. I think if this is a cycle, right, when you first become a Christian, right, you see God's glory and you're like, man, I'm not living for him at all. And so, you know, you feel that conviction and you're like, I really need grace. Grace is beautiful, like, hallelujah. And then you seek to, you know, live for his glory. And then you're like, wow, I don't know anything. And I'm failing in all these ways I'm just discovering. And I need grace. And you kind of move through that cycle. But what starts to happen over time is that you get through that cycle a few times in the Christian life, and then you start getting tempted to, to skip from the glory right to the goodness and to not feel like you need to enter into the grace, right? I mean, I, one of the things, it's just a little detail, but that's interesting when Moses talks to Israel here is that when he's recounting God's works of salvation, his discipline and salvation, he, he doesn't just talk about the past. So he talks about delivering them out of Egypt and bringing them through the Red Sea. And then in 11.5, he says, and what God did to you in the wilderness until you came to this place. So God's salvation is like both, you know, the things, the big things there that you're thinking of the past and this ongoing thing that you're experiencing right up until the present in this time, in this place. And I think we need to recognize that because often— there's this question I try to ask myself, which is about grace, which is, do I believe that Jesus loves me today simply because he loves me? Or am I starting to get that confused, right? I, I'm, I'm clear on the fact that like 15 years ago, Jesus loved me just out of his grace because he chose to love me. But today, is that still what I believe? Because it's so easy for me to then start to think, oh, you know, I mean, like, yeah, like I still fail, but, you know, and I used to be an idiot, but like, I'm doing pretty good now. Like, there's still some stuff, but, you know, I mean, I, I'm growing, and I'm, I'm getting this stuff figured out, and it's so easy then to fall into that trap where I don't think that it's grace from first to last. And that is one of the dangers of pride in Scripture. The Apostle Paul says, Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. And that's what he's talking about. You think, yeah, I'm, I'm standing now, right? <laughs> like, I, don't, I don't need the grace. And that's when you have to watch out that you don't fall. And that is so important because, again, if we start to shrink that grace or if we try to skip that step, that will also short-circuit our ability to truly grow spiritually. If God's glory is the motivation, right, that, that kind of drives us on the spiritual life, God's 
grace is sort of like, sorry, this is probably a dude analogy, but it's like this limiting valve, I feel like, on both the glory and the goodness, which is to say that, um, that if you don't have a very deep sense of grace, then your vision of God's glory has to shrink. Right? Because this, this terrible, fearful, wonderful, awe-inspiring, you know, creator and lord of all things, like, you know, you're going to fall on your face in his presence, but if you don't have the grace to sustain that, then you got to, you know, he's just got to be like, oh, he's cool, right? You got to shrink him down. And at the same time, the goodness, right? The call to, like, love your neighbor as yourself and love God with your heart, whole heart and soul and mind and strength all the time in every way, like, you know, that, if you don't have the grace to sustain that, it's going to wreck you, and so you shrink it down, and you're like, there's like, you know, eight or nine rules I follow in life, and I go to church on Sundays, and that's goodness. <laughs> we, we shrink the glory and the goodness if we don't have enough grace to sustain it. So if that's a struggle, what do we do? Well, one practice, I mean, the simple practice to reclaim is simply to try to practice confession, right? We, we confess our sins here as part of worship on Sunday morning, but practice that in your own life. I try to do that daily. I often just use, and this will be familiar to you um, if you've joined our evening prayer times, but I use from the Anglican Book of Common Prayer, the, the rubric where it just says, Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed, by what we have done, and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. And I just walk through those. How have I sinned in thought? Have I sinned in word? Have I sinned in deed? By what I've done? By what I've left undone? That's often a real convicting one, right? Failing to love God, failing to love neighbor. Just walk through that. Reflect on the ways today that I've fallen short of that. And then renew myself in the grace of the Lord Jesus. And be reminded of the fact that he loves me even in that sin. He's paid for and covers it and welcomes me in. So not opening our eyes, growing pride, and then I'll close us with one last way the process goes wrong. And that is by believing lies. By believing lies about God's goodness. So we said that God's commands are good, and they are sweet, they are beautiful, they are in fact the best way to live in the world. But we often don't believe that and don't feel like that's true. And the reason for that is that our world is constantly trying to lie to us about that fact. And by our world, I don't mean like America in the last 20 years. I mean since Eden. Like when the devil comes to Eve, right, what he does is he calls into question God's goodness. Like that's the place he starts. He starts convincing her that God's trying to rob her of something and make her, you know, miss out on something. And that's the, the kind of beginning thing. And all through scripture and in every culture and at every time and place, the way that, that the devil and the world work is to convince us that God's goodness is not truly good. And that's true in terms of the big obvious commands, right? Absolutely, people, you know, looking at like religious observance or sexuality or whatever in our world have that sense. But it's true, it's true of all the subtle commands tr too. Like you think about the way that Jesus lived in the world and we're all like, oh yeah, we should be like Jesus. But we really struggle to believe that that's actually a good way to live, right? Like is being merciful and kind and gentle in the ways that Jesus was? Like that seems like weakness to us, right? That's what the world tells us. It's, I mean, turning the other cheek, really? <laughs> like, you know, in, in every way, the world tries to convince us that God's calling, God's goodness is actually a vice, and that the fleeting pleasures of sin are true virtue. And that's something we're always going to struggle with in this world. But it also means that we need to fight to recognize that profound goodness. 
Because again, if you don't believe, if you don't see that connection between God's goodness and our call to goodness, then you're going to, to struggle to grow in the Christian life. Because that's the motivation for it, right? When scripture talks about why we should obey God's commands, it's because they're sweet like honey and precious like gold and that they're good. And so it's not a matter of simply trying to buckle down and obey them. That's not going to be enough for you. Now, yes, I mean, here's the thing. Here's, here's what we need to do. I will recognize at times that there are things that God's calling me to do that I think are not good and beautiful. <laughs> and my heart is like that. No, I don't want to do that. I am still called by faith to do that in the present, right? It's not that I can say until I get this figured out, I'm not going to do it. But I'm also called to fight to try to dig down and understand why that is truly good. Right? To try to spend time in prayer and with scripture and reading and reflecting and talking with other people and doing the things to help me get an appreciation of why this is truly good to, to live and to follow God in these ways. Because as I do that, that is actually going to then help me both to live in those ways, because the more I believe that that's what's truly good, the more I'll do it. But it will also help me, again, to behold the goodness of God, and so be drawn back into that process of growing and knowing him more and giving him glory. All right. I know that is a lot of ground that we just covered. I hope it's something you can come back to. But here is my hope and why I try to suggest all of that. I think the great struggle, maybe that's an overstatement, I think one of the great struggles that we have in the modern church is that we've lost sight of that kind of great sweeping picture. We have this idea of like isolated truths about God and isolated commands that God gives, but, but we don't connect them to that, that overarching story of God's glory and grace and goodness and our call, therefore, to seek that goodness and experience that grace and glorify him. And that actually robs them of most of their power, and it often keeps us from understanding why we are struggling. But when we see the way that those things are meant to flow together in our lives— that, that we're actually enabled to say, you know, we're, we're, we're enabled to say, I, I'm beholding God's glory, and so I am being inspired and convicted, and that draws me into experiencing God's grace, and that comforts me and sets me free so that I can seek then after God's goodness and seek to live out of that and to know and to grow closer to him, and so to be drawn again into his glory and ever onward and upward. Because that process, as that is at work in us, is what draws us upward into the glory of being sons and daughters of the kings of Jesus Christ, or of, the, of our King Jesus, of, of experiencing the kind of love and the kind of life that we as his people are called to have. Let's pray. God and Father, you are glorious. You are great and exalted above all things in creation. You spoke, and they have all their being in you. Father, I pray that you would give us hearts that see your glory, that revel in it, that rejoice in it, that are wondering at it, and, and that therefore are drawn to glorify you. And Father, you are gracious. I'm so thankful for your grace. I still fall so far short of the kind of life that you would call me to live. And I, um, I confess that, but I, I give you thanks that your love rests in yourself not in us. And so I pray that you would both humble us and heal us by your grace. And Lord, you are good in all of the ways you provide for us and in all of the ways that you call us to follow after you. And I pray that you would give us hearts that believe that goodness in the face of the world's loss. I pray that you would draw us up into those truths in a way that grow us more and more 
to be like Jesus, to better bear your image and better show your glory and grace and goodness to a watching world. Pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.